The rest of you can open up to the book of 2 Peter. That's where we are. We're in chapter 3 right now. And uh, isn't it good to be in out of the rain? Isn't it good to have rain? Yeah. Some of us forgot what that was around here. Any snow sport people, snowboarders, skiers in the room? Okay, snowboarders and skiers see rain a little different than the average person because they think, all right, this means some fun later on. It's actually coming. It was a brutal year last year for that. I have this maxim that uh, I've taught a lot of people to snowboard. I really enjoy, um, really enjoy hurting people. And so I like to teach people to snowboard. And there's a maxim that I tell them at the start. I say, the end of the day, the goal is not to have a clean outfit and the fact that you haven't fallen. In fact, if you aren't falling, you aren't trying. That's what I tell them. Like, just plan on falling while you learn to snowboard. Because that means that you're, that you're trying. And I was thinking about the Christian parallel. There's a Christian parallel to this as well. And that is this. Um, in, in, in snowboarding or skiing, you're fighting gravity. That's, that's what you're doing. That's what you're trying to do. You're on a slick surface and you're fighting gravity. And so there's going to be falling involved. And as a Christian, there's a certain current. There's a certain gravity to our culture that tends to want to pull us in a direction. And it's going to tend to oppose us. So the way I would parallel that to a Christian is this. If you aren't opposed as a Christian, you aren't trying. The end of the goal for a Christian is not to get through life and say, I've never crossed paths with anyone that didn't agree with me. In fact, if that's true of your life right now, if the stuff we're talking about in Second Peter seems really, really foreign to you, may I be so bold as to say, maybe you aren't saved. Maybe it's just that as a Christian, you've been cowardly and you've been holding in, inside uh, what it means to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Is that not what Jesus told us to do? Go and be his witness here, right here in San Jose, in all of California, in the whole world. And to do that, we'll invite criticism. Now, we've been talking a lot about trumpets around here. And if you're new to the program, you're thinking, why are they so obsessed with trumpets? Here's what the trumpet represents. These three icons that you see, the life ring, the sword, and the trumpet, all represent the three chapters in Second Peter. And right now, we're focused on the coming day of the Lord. And the trumpet is a reminder for every Christian that our hope is based on this fact. We are convinced that Jesus is coming through on his promise. He's promised to come again. We just sang, our God's not dead, he's alive. And the second part of that is, and he's coming again. And so that trumpet is to remind us, it's to stir in our brains the hope that we have as Christians is that Jesus is coming again. Now, that invites teasing in this world, does it not? I mean, you really believe that? You really believe that a trumpet's going to sound and Jesus is going to come back? And if you answer yes... That's going to invite mockers into your life. So how do you handle that opposition? If you weren't here last week, really, um, this is very much part two of last week. There's a flow of ideas that I don't want us to miss. So in 10 seconds, let me, let me uh, review last week a little bit. Peter is answer, answering the age-old questions that scoffers will bring. He is bringing up issues and questions that scoffers will bring. And he says, in the last days, these things are going to happen. And he points out a few ways of how to handle the opposition. Engage your brain. Think. Unashamedly depend on the Bible and engage in this. Love peace, but be willing to fight about the right things. Now, there's a proverb that speaks to this. Before we move on to 
verses 7 to 10, which we're going to cover this week, I want to just touch on this how to handle opposition. Um, there's, a, there's a proverb, Proverb 26, that says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Very next verse, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, at first read, does that not seem contradictory? Right? You're like, I found it. The Bible says it doesn't contradict itself. I found it. It's right there in Proverbs. How come no one saw this before? What these two verses are indicating are the variety of opposition that you'll encounter. Some people that you come across as Christians, they're just mockers. You know what their aim is? Their aim is to embarrass. Their aim is to twist. Their aim is to harass. Don't answer a fool lest you become like him. Don't answer mockers who are that. They're not wanting to really engage in a dialogue. They're wanting to engage in the sport of debate. So there are some people you just don't answer. However, there are others that you'll come across who are absolutely genuine in their search. And catch this, they are convinced by logic and by reason and by emotion and by past experience and by what they've been told. They are convinced against Christ. They're not mockers out to just embarrass and twist you as a Christian. They're genuine in their beliefs. Here would be the response as a Christian. Reason with them. Answer them lest they be all the more convinced. See, there's no good reason to trust in Jesus Christ. So Christian, speak out. Answer them. Be ready with the defense, but... Don't cast your pearls before swine. What's the nature of swine? They wallow, right? They always will return to wallow. We learned that in 2 Peter. And they'll turn and attack you. Some comments deserve a response. Others don't. Now, this takes immense wisdom in a moment-by-moment situation, depending on who you're standing in front of, to know which is which. In fact, I would say it takes wisdom you don't possess. It takes walking by the Spirit. It means being on mission for Jesus Christ, and as you're dialoguing with someone, you begin to pick up cues. And sometimes I just get a deep sense, this is not someone that I should be casting pearls before. This is not a, a person I should be answering. Other times, it's very, very clear, this is a person I need to speak out about um, and, and give a defense for the hope that I have within me. Let me give you two quick uh, people who model this. Jesus Christ, he is spit on, he's abused, he's mocked. We just sang about this. He has a crown of thorns that's fashioned and it's crammed onto his skull in mockery as the king. And Jesus endured this. And if you read the Passion Week, the week that Jesus died, the stuff we celebrate at Easter time, if you read those accounts, you'll realize that much of the time, most of the time, Jesus remains silent. Answer not a fool. That's Jesus. Let me point to Stephen. Stephen in Acts 6. You can read all about this in chapter 6 and 7 of Acts. Stephen, in Acts 6, 9, it says this. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, and then it lists a few other people, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Why did they oppose Stephen? You know why? Because he was being a witness for Jesus Christ. Why were these people particularly uptight about it? They were the ones who authorized Jesus' murder. That's pretty bold. 
They disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So as we move forward, if you want to learn more about opposition and what's coming, listen to last week. That's what, that's what last week's passage was all about. We're going to move on from that, but I just want you to see kind of the variety that you'll face. This is why, um, as helpful as it is, there are some witnessing tools I have in my tool belt that at a moment's notice, I can pull them out and share Christ with people. But this is why I don't believe there is one pat answer that Christians ought to learn and kind of this set track that they get on when they start talking with people about spiritual things. We can all kind of sniff that out when someone's trying to sell us on something and they've just got their well-rehearsed script. Look, I really don't want a vacuum cleaner. It's Saturday. I'm trying to rake things. You know, I don't want your vacuum cleaner. And no matter which way you answer, that salesperson knows how to kind of answer. And you know they're just on a pat answer track thing. And if you talk to them about rainbows and unicorns, they won't even engage with that. They'll, they'll get back on one of their track. They're not really involved in a dialogue. Christians who do the same thing are doing a disservice. Some people are mockers. Some people are utterly convinced about Christ in a different way. They require different things. All right, Peter is teaching here about future events. This is from, from last week, kind of a review. Uh, verse 3 is that there's not just religious nuts, but there's anti-religious nuts. Uh, verse 4, here's what they're going to say. Verses 5 to 6, here's what's really going on. This is Peter saying, in the last days, scoffers are going to show up. Here's what they're going to talk about. Now, here's what we're going to look at this morning. Here is what is coming, verse 7. And then in verse 10, this is God's timing and the reason for his apparent delay. Big idea this morning I want you to grab onto is this, that Jesus promised that he would come back for us. And this opens up the topic of, of last days. Uh, when, when you think about last days and you think about Jesus' return, um, some of you think about heated debates if you grew up in the church. I grew up in the church. Um, and so I, I grew up hearing people argue about last days and speculate about last days and all kinds of different things. Um, here's, here's what I want to ask you this morning. What is important for us to know about last days? You can answer out loud or you can just mull on that for a moment. What is really important for us to know about last days? They're coming. That's a, that's a pretty good one. What, Tim? Be ready. That's right. As I thought about what's, what's really important about the last days, here's what it is. It's whatever God has written down. It's whatever he's put in writing to tell us. Now, here's what's not utterly important about last days. All the stuff that he's not put in writing. There's a whole bunch of speculation that goes on that God hasn't chosen to reveal to us. They're reserved for him. He hasn't chosen to reveal to us. So those aren't the things that we're to give ourselves to in trying to figure out things about the last days. Now, just the stuff written down has caused plenty of argument and speculation and, and dialogue back and forth, right? And we can do that, and we will do that until the last days occur. But that's what I want you to, to think on. Uh, Peter touches on two things. What is going to happen, and when are these things going to take place? And by the way, both the things he touches on today, he learned from his master. Jesus taught... Both of these principles that Peter's going to just reiterate to, uh, to his listeners here um, in, his, in his letter. Here's the one giant overlying truth that I want you to catch. Verse 10. And um, Chris already said this. Verse 10 says, 
The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then on and on it goes. And here's what I think people tend to do. They tend to jump right to the details. Like a thief. Well, what's that thief about? And let's dialogue and let's dissect and let's figure that out. And they miss the most important part of this. Here's the most important part. The day of the Lord will come. Can you just, can we just settle on that for one second? Jesus is returning. He is coming back. So sometimes jumping to the minutia and the details and bickering back and forth. Well, I heard this and I heard that. If you, if you translate that in the original, it, 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 you know, forms this picture. What sometimes happens, we jump to the minutia and we forget this big picture. The day of the Lord will come. That's the really big idea of everything we're going to say today. Now, he does offer some details. What? What is it about the, the last days? If you think about Christmas, we're about to celebrate the, the coming of Christ. Christmas time, we celebrate an intervention. God stepping into human history and not saying that everything just continues as it is. God changed the course of history at a certain point in time. He intervened. That's a past, that's a celebration of a past intervention by God. You know what the last days are in Jesus' return are? It's forward looking to a future intervention of God. So if you find Jesus returning and some of the end time stuff that's written down, and it gets pretty wild. If you find it hard to believe ever, if you just go, wow, that, is that really going to happen? I want to direct your attention to say, what do you think about the baby Jesus? Did Jesus come in the flesh as a baby, born of a virgin, live a sinless life, die on a cross, rise again, and call you to follow him. If you believe that, if you base your faith on that and you can trust in that, that's a past supernatural intervention. There's no laws of normalcy that would dictate all of that would happen, right? So it is with a future intervention. Look at verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, I've broken this up into what and when. So let me stay on the what for a moment. Skip down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I want to highlight two things of what are coming, future events that are coming. They are fire and their judgment, two ideas that are Kind of captured in here. An accurate and often mentioned feature of God's judgment, and even by people who don't know the scriptures but just make movies because it's kind of apocalyptic and it's kind of sells well and all that, fire, right? We get that. That's just an often mentioned. Now, it happens to be accurate. That's what the Bible says that the earth is reserved for. And it's the future of most everything you look at and touch every single day. Here's a, here's a really good thing for you to do. You ought to, you ought to get in the habit of not being too attached to your stuff. You ought to be in the habit once in a while of looking at your favorite coffee mug, your favorite piece of jewelry, whatever it might be, and look at that and go, that's gonna burn. Like the end destiny of that car, it's gonna just burn. Now, we're able to worship God anywhere at every time. Chuck, what was the passage you read about Thanksgiving? Give thanks when? 
Always, in every circumstance. That means you can always be having a worship service no matter where you are or what's going on. One of the weirdest, by far, worship services that I've ever have, have had happen took place at Highway 85 and Saratoga Avenue. Some of you know this story. I'm driving home from Valley Church where I was working at the time, and as I was driving, my Jeep caught on fire, unbeknownst to me. I pull over, I jump out, and what I did was I stepped back a few feet, actually many feet, and I sat there and I got a little preview of what all of my stuff is going to face one day. Now, here's a picture for insurance purposes of my computer laptop bag, and in the bottom part are my disc golf uh, bag. And, and, and you just can tell kind of the general destruction going on there. And I, I genuinely, as I stood there watching my car burn, now you haven't lived until you've watched your windshield turn to liquid right before your very eyes. In about four minutes, my car was completely toast. And two thoughts came over me. One is, wow, it's all going to burn. That's the second most expensive thing I've ever owned. And here it goes, up in flames. And the second thought is this. I was thankful. I was genuinely overcome. I said, God, thank you for letting me be alive. I couldn't care less about my Jeep. Now, you guys know me. I like my Jeep. But you know what? I was sitting right here a few minutes before it looked like this. And so as I stood there watching my car go up in flames, Hilarious, because a guy ran up, you know, pulled over at some point, he had a work truck, and he runs around his truck, and he comes over and he hands me this fire extinguisher. And by this point, the flames are like up in the air, and I said, no, thank you, like, thanks, you know, appreciate the sentiment, you know, but we're going to just let this one burn. So in that worship service, I got a preview of what all the stuff, all the things that we're shopping for, all the stuff that, that people clamor for keeping nice and working on and working for, it's all going to burn. Sobering, isn't it? Let's you take inventory of kind of where your heart and head are at. But not only fire, there's also judgment. Let me ask you this. According to Geico, what can 15 minutes save you? 15% or more on car insurance. Now, Geico realizes that was such a good ad campaign that they have a new campaign out that says this. Did you know that 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance? To which the guy says next to him, everybody, see, it's still working. They're still doing good campaigns. Everybody knows that. And then they give some little witty side part to that, right? There's something else going on here with judgment. If you were to walk up to almost anyone and say, did you know that one day you're going to have to face your own mortality? That means you're going to have to die. You know what they would say? Everyone knows that. Here's what a Christian can say. But did you know? that you're also one day going to have to face your own morality. Drop the T. All of a sudden, that changes the conversation. Did you know you're going to die one day? Duh! Did you know that you're going to stand and face judgment for your morality, your choices while you lived on earth? That changes the dialogue a little bit, doesn't it? Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes judgment. Look at what Peter says in verse 7. He mentions judgment. And then down in verse 10, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Judgment. Would you agree with me that if you believe you will have to give an account in the future, it will change how you live in the present? Would you agree with me on that? Let me give you an example. 
boss man is going away on a trip. He says he's coming back on Friday. He says, I want all projects done when I return. It's Monday. You have a few choices. Choice number one is this. You can maintain order and productivity throughout the whole week just as if the boss were there. Some of you would choose that route without question. Option B, you can chillax until Thursday afternoon and pull an all-nighter. I know some of you. Some of you pull that route, right? Option C is to blow it off completely and begin to take the boss's corner office and turn it into your own personal man cave. Right? And you're installing a nacho machine and a big screen TV, and you're starting to just move into his office. Now, which of those three choices might depend a little bit on your personality, but most fundamentally, it totally depends on whether you think you'll have to give an account to your boss on Friday or not. Don't you see, if if you're not convinced he's not coming back, that affects your decisions on what you do. If you are convinced boss man is coming back and you need and want that job and you will give an account for how you managed yourself while he was gone, that changes what your Monday is like and what your Tuesday is like and what the rest of that week is like. Here's what I would say as a Christian. As a Christian, out of love, out of respect, and out of fear of our boss, We are about his business. We choose to keep on keeping on about the things of God. And to chillax or blow it off completely is not an option for a Christian because we will be held accountable. And we're convinced of that. So that becomes a motivation for us is just to understand that our future is uh, helps dictate how, how we live in the present. All right, so fire and judgment are two aspects of the what of Jesus' return. Uh, I want to turn our attention to the when, to just timing of last days. The way that we interpret events in our life have a huge bearing on our lives, just on our life story. God made a promise. It hasn't happened yet. Times are rough. What is happening right now? all of a sudden interpretation is inserted into that equation, right? What's happening? Person A might say God's delay is a sure sign that he isn't concerned. Person B could say, absolutely not. The delay actually means just the opposite. He cares deeply for people, and so he's being uh, merciful by holding off judgment. Person A says God's forgetful. Person B says God's patient. Do you see how the events of our lives once you overlay interpretation onto those events, um, it doesn't change what's actually happening, but it certainly changes our, perspe- our, our uh, perception of what is happening. So which is it? Is God forgetful or is he patient with us? This is the question that actually both scoffers and the faithful will wrestle with over time. Not just the timing, but God's trustworthiness. God, are you really going to come through on this? You've left us. You've promised not to leave us as orphans. Are you really coming back? It's really his character and trustworthiness that's on the line as well. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 in our passage. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter, in a nutshell, says this, his timing is different than ours, and his purpose for waiting is good. Time is viewed differently by God. Now, this week, uh, our youngest son, who's four years old, his name's Eli, at the dinner table, um, the way he merges into a conversation, it's hard to get a word in edgewise when there's nine people eating and talking uh, at the dinner table. He jumps in with this. He goes, um! And that's kind of his way. Like, I want in. He doesn't really know how to gracefully do that. So he goes, um! And then here's what he said to us. We're all sitting there at the dinner table. Yesterday, when I grow up, such and such happened. So yesterday, the past, when I grow up, the future, such and such happened, the past again. And the whole, like, probably the older four all kind of got kind of a funny look on their face. And I remarked how pleasant it must be to not be confined by time like the rest of us are. Because in his world, that all just makes perfect sense. Now, my wife brought it home to a more uplifting thought. She said, huh, I wonder if that's how God can view time. I wonder if to God, because he already knows the future, he's able to actually think of it in a way that that is just different than us. I think she's right with that. God does not live in a timeless existence. It's just that he's eternal. And so his relationship to time is different than ours. This isn't that much different than a child asking, how much longer on a car trip? And the parent giving an answer. And isn't that answer relative? If the kid doesn't understand an hour and a half more, then that will make no sense. To one of my kids on the way to Disneyland, I said, we're almost there. We're about an hour away. So like near Christmas time? No, sweetie, it's July. Like an hour and a half didn't mean anything to that, to that child at that moment. But even so, if a parent says we're almost there because they're within 20 minutes, can 20 minutes seem like a long time to a squirmy six-year-old? Say yes. Absolutely, right? You lied to me. You said we were almost there. I had to wait 20 more minutes. How much more so with our Heavenly Father? How much more so is it us perceiving time a certain way and God being able to say we're almost there and for us not to quite grasp it on the same level as he does? Verse 80 says, do not overlook this one fact. Remember Peter's been being, being doing a lot of reminding. You know what he's saying with this? Remember, don't overlook this fact. I'm reminding you of something. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He's not saying it is one day. It's like that. All he's doing is bringing to their mind the nature of God. He's actually just restating Psalm 94 a little bit. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So not only is God's view of time totally different than ours, but secondly, his timing is Perfect. What we might see as a delay in God's response, and we've all done this. God, I prayed for this, and you're late. You ever accuse God of being late? That's questioning God's timing. What we perceive as a delay, he sees as perfect timing. Now, think about this for a moment. Part of our problem sometimes, part of my problem sometimes, is I want to attribute attributes to God that make sense to me, that are like me. If you let yourself have leeway in that, you form a God in your own image and you end up worshiping yourself. 
God's ways are higher than our ways. His view of time is different than our way, than our, than our view of time. When we linger or appear to delay on a promise, think about it. What is happening? I came up with a few ideas. It's either that we've forgotten. It's either that we are stalling for time. Maybe we were lying in the first place and we never intended to come through on the promise. Or maybe we flat out can't fulfill the promise. Maybe we just don't have the power. We said we were going to do this. We can't do that. So we're in delay. Those are, those are some of the reasons that we might be stalling or lingering on a promise. Not so with God. God is mercifully patient. Every single day that God delays his judgment of the wicked ought to well up some things in a Christian. Every day that passes, every morning you wake up, every night that you close your eyes and go to bed, you ought to not be uh, bemoaning the deterioration of morals in our culture or the rise of mockers, but rather you ought to marvel at God's mercy to sinners. You ought to just, you ought to just praise God for that. God, you are merciful. Parents, grandparents, Think of your patience with your kids and grandkids. Do you parent anything like God? I don't. I don't. God, you are merciful to sinners. Perfectly just, perfectly right in administering judgment. You're merciful. Secondly, Christians ought to not get complacent or skeptical about his return. Rather, every day that you wake up, every night that you lay your head on the pillow, you ought to be energized. God, this is one more day that one more sinner can turn from their sin and be freed and forgiven by you. You're the Messiah. You're at work. You're alive. You're coming again. That ought to energize us, friends. We ought to wake up and say, this is another day. This really is the day that the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice today and be glad in this. I'm going to be about his work, not be complacent just because he didn't come yesterday. Christ died for sinners at just the right time. Do you believe that? The Bible says that's true. At just the right time, Christ died for sinners. At the right moment in all of history. Did you know that at just the right time, Jesus is going to come again? And guess what? Look at your hands. It's not in your hands. That's not your call. Thank you, God, that it's not your call or my call. That's God's call. If you've never thanked God for his merciful patience, it's Thanksgiving weekend. Start today. Start being thankful about God's timing in things. All right, more timing. It's it's going to be unexpected. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Coming like a thief. This metaphor um, is used by both Jesus and Paul. They both use this kind of thief picture. If you've ever been broken into, you know that immediately what you do is you start to roll through your brain. Oh, did I lock the car? Did I lock up? Like You start to roll through what could have been done differently. You start thinking, if I had been there, that wouldn't have been stolen. And, and all those kinds of scenarios. The big lesson here is that it's going to be unexpected. Don't waste your time calculating when Christ will return. Just be prepared. That's what Tim said. Be prepared. Ready yourself. Stay awake. It can come at any time. Do you know what God has put in writing? He's standing by it. I'm coming back. You know what he's not put in writing? When? 
So if any joker ever comes along and says that they've figured out the date of Christ's return, we've had several of those in my lifetime. I mean, these are real scenarios, people really selling their stuff because they are going somewhere soon. Thus far, they've all been proven wrong. If any joker ever comes to that, know your Bible, read your Bible. Say you're wasting your time, brother. Get off it, sister. That's not the track you should be on. You should be readying yourself. You should be about the Lord's business. You should be humble enough to understand the scriptures speak to that. We don't know when it's going to come. It's going to come unexpected. Let me conclude with this. Some of you in here are dealing with critics. You're dealing with the opposition right now. And to give thanks in all circumstances seems like a big ask from God. God, I'm going back Monday morning to a boss that ridicules Christians in the office. I'm related to or married to or in a family with someone who mocks my belief in you. Here's my word to you. Would you love them like Jesus? Love them like Jesus. Now, what does that mean? You've got to know what Jesus loved like, right? Sometimes it means answering them. Sometimes it means speaking out and saying words to them. Oftentimes, read it. Go read your Gospels. Often at times, remaining silent. And did you know at other times it means avoiding them altogether? All three of those are viable, reasonable, biblical responses to people who are opposing you and mocking you. Stephen, who I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon this morning, he answered his critics, and then while he was preaching his last sermon, it's a fascinating sermon, he kind of reviews the Old Testament in about a chapter. While he's preaching... He's murdered for the message he's bringing. Talk about opposition, right? And what are the last words of Stephen? God, don't hold this sin against them. Who does that sound like? Yeah. He's just, he's just being a disciple. He's just doing what Jesus did. So Jesus said from the cross. Did you know there was a young cynic there watching the whole thing? That God got a hold of his heart? His name's Paul. You may have heard of him. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. The critics that are opposing you today, every single one of them, hear this. Every single critic that is opposing you today is a potential convert. Is God big enough to to convert that person? He converted Saul into Paul. There's people... I want you to get in your mind the the most hardened person that you can't possibly envision God could change their heart and then multiply it by 10. That was Paul. And God did that work. So view people as potential converts. Some of you this morning are questioning God's timing and, in addition, really his character. Here's my challenge to you. Take God off the stand for a moment. Be still for the purpose of listening to God. Stop your questioning of God so much. Take him off the stand and be still and listen. You know what? Wait always has a reason with God. Always. He's right on time. 
So if he's saying wait to something right now, there's a reason for that. Be still and listen to what God has to say about that. Repent of thinking that you know better than God on timing. The next time your child corrects you on which way you should be going and they're four, that ought to lodge in your mind. Wow, that's like me questioning God. This kid doesn't have a clue which the right direction is. And that's me questioning God. Thirdly, this morning, if you're mocking God, there is coming a day when those who mock God will be judged. You will be held accountable for your morals. And the Bible says it explicitly clear. The ungodly are going to be destroyed by fire. There's punishment coming for mockers. Hebrews 3 says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's coming a day when judgment's coming, but it hasn't happened yet. Could it be today? Yes. It could be today. Judgment time. Today could be judgment day, but it hasn't happened yet. And brother, sister, you're sitting in a room. God's got you in a church room hearing about the gospel, the free gift of Jesus Christ that you just simply need to receive and put your trust in. That's available to you today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't put it off and think, you know what? Next week I'll get right with God. Once I get out of my teens and have a little bit of fun, I'll get right with God. Man, you don't have that guaranteed. There's coming a day when mockers will be judged. Let me invite the band up. We're going to sing a couple of songs that I hope will just serve to musically reinforce some of what the scriptures just talk to us about. Pray with me. God, for the cynics and the faithful, the ones who would praise you with their mouths, the ones who mock you with their mouths. God, it's like this rain. You, you send the rain on the just and on the unjust. God, you're patient today. You're merciful today to those who would mock you and those who would praise you. God, I think those of us who have received the free gift of salvation, who are walking in our eternal life right now, we just say thank you for that. We're moved, God, to be stirred to think about what you went through and what you did to provide for us. Thank you. God, for those whose hearts today are stirred, who, who understand that they've been a mocker, their lives have been in word and conduct, blasphemous to a holy God. I pray that today is the day of salvation. I pray today, God, that they would willingly bend the knee, open the mouth, and confess Jesus as Lord. God, thanks for giving us lips and a tongue to praise you with this morning. In Jesus' name.